messages and the right lessons to teach them that are just what they need. And we ask that you would guide and direct our steps as we work and labor with them over the next several uh, days here. Then, Father, bless our service tonight and speak to our hearts. Help us to be grounded in our faith even more as we leave here tonight than we were when we came in. That our hearts will be drawn closer to you. That there will be a zeal and a desire to stand for truth in a day where truth is being eroded and attacked from every aspect. May we be solid in our faith. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. All right. Let's, uh, let's go ahead and take our Bibles tonight, if you will. <coughs> Excuse me. <clears throat> and um, uh, I'm trying to figure out where we want to start tonight. Let's go ahead and start with... Um, oh, let's see here. I'm going to go ahead and start... Um, let's go to Matthew chapter 19. I'm going to work kind of backwards in my notes a little bit for tonight. Matthew chapter 19... And uh, I want to just, we're going to be at least two more Wednesdays tonight and, and at least next Wednesday night. Uh, I'll try to wrap up by next Wednesday night. If not, it'll be, be one more. But uh, this idea of evolution and creation has, has taken our world by storm. And uh, I wrote a question down this week as I was getting ready to do some notes uh, for tonight and uh, knowing the direction we were wanting to go. And the question I wrote down is this. Is it really that important? And tonight I want to take a few moments to try to answer that question. Is it really that important? Uh, what's the big deal, whether somebody uh, believes in evolution or in creation? In 1909, uh, a survey was done of those that called themselves Christians. Now, this is not... Uh, exclusively our denomination, but every denomination that would consider themselves part of the Christian title, uh, 32% of them believed in evolution of some sort, either uh, direct evolution of what the world teaches right now or some sort of theistic evolution at, at the least. And it seems like as they would, as the, uh, the uh, people that were doing the poll would add God into the mix as a possible uh, co-contributor to evolution, that Christians were more apt to believe in it. Uh, now, out of fundamental Christianity, people like we would that we would say would be doctrinally sound uh, in 1909 or in, in 2009, excuse me. Uh, there was only eight uh, percent that believed in evolution. So, uh, but Christianity as a whole, 32 percent in 2009. Fast forward 10 years in 2019, another poll was taken. And this time, 53% of those that called themselves Christians now believe in evolution. And just in 10 years, we see almost a doubling of those that would call themselves Christians uh, holding to this thing of evolution. Uh, vitally, vitally important. I want to look at several passages of Scripture at the onset, and then I'm going to be giving you a lot of, um, a lot of uh, scientific um, things and, and arguments and some historical facts that um, kind of help refute some of the common day misconceptions of evolution that are going on in the world today. It used to be called the theory of evolution. I think I mentioned this last Wednesday. Nowadays, they just refer to it as evolution. And there are a lot of uh, textbooks now and scientists that will say, while it began as a theory, it is now established as fact. Uh, and our world is rapidly, rapidly embracing this thing. Of evolution. Why is it that important? Is it that important? Is it, does it really matter that much whether you hold to evolution or not? I've talked to 
other Christians, other friends of mine that are in churches, and when you talk to them about the origin of the earth, and, and maybe they went to public schools and they were raised in the in the um, in the uh, public school system, and then through higher education, the public uh, colleges and universities, it's amazing to me how many of them try to mesh the biblical story of creation or the fact that God had a part in it with evolution. They try to make them agree. But can I tell you this, that when there is something that denies the truth of Scripture, it cannot be made to mesh with the truth of Scripture. Uh, they are opposed one to the other. And I want to I just make, a, uh, I wanna make one statement to kind of, um, just, just kind of alleviate uh, one thought here. I don't believe tonight that every person who believes in evolution has at the center of their belief the desire to undermine Scripture or to undermine the truth of God. I don't know that that's their purpose. In fact, I think a vast majority of people who believe in evolution don't realize that by believing in it they are undermining Scripture. I think most of them are ignorant of that fact. But I will say this, there is no doubt that many who do believe in evolution and have been propagators of evolution certainly have that goal in mind, and that is their agenda. They try to hide that. They, they try to make it sound like, no, this is all about science and religion doesn't have a part in it. But the truth is, they are out to destroy the faith of many. And it's, 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 a, it's a vocal minority, but they are strong in what they've done. And they have had a plan in place for a number of years, and they have now indoctrinated several generations of our people into believing this thing of evolution. And, uh, and so I, I don't want you to get the mindset tonight that I'm saying that every person that believes evolution is an atheist or is anti-God or is anti-Bible truth. I am saying that every choice we make in life has a consequence. Every choice. Whether it's a good choice, we get a good consequence from it, a good result from it. If it's a bad choice, we get bad consequences, bad results from it. And so I want to say this, that whether it is their intent in believing evolution to undermine God and His Word or not, whether that's their intent or not, it certainly is the result. When they believe in evolution, they may not intend to do so. But the consequence of it is they have undermined God and His Word. And so I don't want, I don't want you to go out here and, and find the first person you can find that believes in evolution and say, well, you're out to try to destroy God's Word. I don't know that they are trying to. I think they just don't realize that that is the end result of it. And they are doing it, though. And, and it is important for us. So it is, it is this important because it does undermine the truth of God's Word. In fact, we're going to see it very clearly here with just one passage of Scripture in a few moments when we get to the book of Romans. But let's look in Matthew chapter number 19, and I want you to look in verses 4 and 5. Some people say, well, uh, the, the creation story, it's, it's an allegory, or maybe it's not dealing with <coughs> 24-hour days. And we have what's called the day-age theory, and we have um, theistic evolution uh, that's out there. The day-age theory is uh, people who say, well, these days represent eons of time. But the Bible is very clear in Genesis 1.1. It's very, very specific uh, to say evening and morning were the first day. And so it gives us a very specific 24-hour period. Uh, in these. It, it, whenever the Bible refers to a day, uh, so for instance, uh, the phrase the day of the Lord 
often refers to a period of time uh, at the end time events. Um, and at least in one occasion, deals with the end time events beginning with the rapture and ending with the millennial reign of the Lord Jesus Christ. And, uh, and so we would say, okay, well, that, that's, that reference today is referring to a period of time. But when it is also modified by additional information, such as evening and morning were the first day, uh, evening and morning were the second day, we know that these were not eons of time or ages of time, but they were 24-hour periods of time. And so, again, uh, they, they try to come up with day-age theories, and they use the verse, well, a day with the Lord is as a thousand years, and a thousand years is as a day. And so we can use that to explain these millions of years of evolution that took place, that God created the initial matter and energy and then let it evolve. Can I tell you this? What my God does, He does very well. And He doesn't need it to evolve into something better than what He created. In fact, if anything, what He has created has devolved because of man's sin. We have, become, we have begun to decline. Uh, we are not getting uh, older and older. When man was first created, they were living almost a thousand years. Um, now we're living, if we're fortunate, if, no, not if we're fortunate. If we're fortunate, we only lived about 80 or 90. Uh, I heard a guy the other day say he was getting ready to have his 99th birthday. I told him, I said, I don't know if I want to live to be 99. <coughs> but um, our, our lifespans are going down. Certainly our moral values are going down. The depravity of our world is going down. Uh, and, and so we find everything is, is in a... a um, is in a, a, a process of, of uh, declining and spiraling down. And uh, what God made, the Bible tells us in Genesis, that God saw it and it was good. It didn't need to be improved on. It didn't need to be tweaked. It didn't need to be fixed. It was perfect from the very beginning. And um, so the idea of theistic evolution doesn't hold water, where God began by making the matter and the energy and then just let it evolve uh, without His direction. That doesn't hold sense. It does matter greatly. And so let's look at Matthew chapter 19. Let's look at verse number 4. And he answered and said unto them. Now this is the Lord Jesus Christ speaking here. He says, Have ye not read that he which made them at the beginning made them male and female, and said, For this cause shall a man leave his father and mother, and shall cleave to his wife, and they twain shall be one flesh. Here, the Lord Jesus Christ himself is referring to the fact that in the beginning, God created male and female. Now, according to evolution, men didn't come on the scene till billions of years later. But Jesus said, in the beginning, He made man and He made a, 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 a woman. If, if we were to try to say uh, evolution and all these eons of time took place before man was created, or before man evolved, <coughs> then the Lord Jesus Christ would have to be lying here. What does that do to our salvation? If Christ had sinned in one area, what would that have done to our salvation? wouldn't be able to be saved, would we? He wouldn't be who He said He was. He would not have done what He said He did to save us from our sin. He would not be a worthy sacrifice, and we would be destined to pay for our own sin. Does it matter? Yes, it absolutely matters. Because if we hold to this thing of evolution, and we say, well, it has to be all these millions of years, 
then the Lord Jesus Christ has to be lying here in Matthew. You can't have it both ways. This happened in the beginning, he says. Verse number 4. Uh, let's also look in 1 Timothy chapter 2. 1 Timothy uh, chapter 2. I'm not going to read all of these passages, but I'll give you this one and then I'll read you some of the others. But Paul refers to creation in 1 Timothy chapter 2, and let's look in verse number 13. Uh, see if I got the, do I have the right passage? No, I'm sorry. I'm in second. I'll return. I said First Timothy, right? I'm in second Timothy. It's First Timothy chapter two, verse thirteen. For Adam was first formed, then Eve, and Adam was not deceived, but the woman, being deceived, was in the transgression. Notwithstanding, she shall be saved in childbearing if they continue in faith and charity and holiness and sobriety. And again, dealing with the fact that men, uh, man was formed, and then Eve. Again, talking about Christ forming them, or that God formed them in the Garden of Eden. And so Paul refers to it. He refers to it also in 1 Corinthians chapter 15, and verse number 22, and again in verse number 45 of the same chapter, he references the creation story. And so again, if we hold to evolution, then the Apostle Paul has to be, has to be fallible in his writings. What does that do to our New Testament? The vast majority of it cannot be trusted. If Paul is wrong in this area, let's look in Jude, Jude, and verse number fourteen, chapter one. By the way, because there's only one chapter here, Jude fourteen. And Enoch also the seventh from Adam prophesied of these things. Behold, the Lord cometh with ten thousand of his saints, and so. He's referencing the time of Enoch by the first man, by the fact that Adam was the beginning. And so he's giving a reference of time from the beginning that Enoch, uh, seven generations from Adam, uh, was the time period where he lived. Now look with me in Romans chapter 5, and this is where I'm going to try to draw a couple of things here that, that will help us maybe more fully understand this. You know, what's the big deal? Should we make this a big deal? Uh, if we have friends that believe in evolution, Christian friends, let's say, that believe in evolution, even unsaved friends, perhaps, that believe in evolution, is this something we should bring up as a topic with them? I believe so. It's vitally important that we do. If, if, we, cannot, if we cannot share the Bible with them as a source of absolute, infallible authority, then how are they going to trust the gospel message that we bring them from it? They're going to be questioning the Scriptures. They're going to be saying, well, I know the Bible says it, but I don't know. I don't know. It's wrong in other areas is what they're going to be thinking. We must make sure they understand that this book is infallible in what it says. Look with me in Romans chapter 5. And let's read verse number 12. The Bible says this, Wherefore, as by one man sin entered into the world. Now, I want to stop there for a moment. Who's, who's this that he's talking about? Who's sin? Who's the one man that sinned? Adam, okay? So, Sin enters the world with Adam. There was no sin prior to him. Wherefore, as by one man, sin entered into the world, and death by sin. Now, so it's telling us now that death is the result of the sin. There was no death prior to sin. Are we, are we, with, are we on the same page here? Adam sins, and because of the sin... God had said, In the day ye eat thereof, thou shalt surely what? 
die. And, of course, Satan tells him, no, you're not going to die. He said, thou shalt not surely die. But God had said, you're going to die. And sure enough, the day that Adam ate of the garden, a part of him died immediately. That spiritual side of him died immediately. That, 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 that part of us that God makes alive again when we get saved. The part that He quickens inside of us when we get saved. That part of Adam died immediately. Not only did he die a spiritual death, but he began that moment declining in his physical life as well. And so death began its process in Adam that very moment, that very day. Now, let me, let me ask a couple of questions here. If there was death prior to Adam, then what would have been the penalty for sin? If death was prior to Adam, what would have been the penalty for sin? The answer to that would be there would be none. Well, that causes us to ask us a second question. It would, it would then cause us to come to the conclusion that the result of sin being death is a fictional thing, that, that that's not true. If, that, if that's the case, then there would be no need for a Savior. There's no penalty for the sin. Then why do we need a Savior? If, if there's no need for a Savior, then why did Christ come? Why did He die on the cross? Why did He raise again from the dead? Why did He, why did he come to die for our sins? If there's no penalty for sin, that would mean then that Jesus wouldn't have been our Redeemer, even if He did come and die and rose again. He would not be our Redeemer. He would not be our Savior. I mean, what would be the purpose? And that would then mean that Christianity is false and that it's empty. Now, I'm going to bring this one verse to bear. And I want us to understand something. There are sometimes... That somebody will say, well, I don't know if I believe that verse, and we don't make a big deal about it. We say, well, it's just one verse. Is one verse being wrong in Scripture that important? Absolutely. If this verse is wrong, then the entire foundation of Christianity is undermined. A lot of times, people who name the name of Christ, people who study their Bibles... They, they will say, oh, I don't think it's that big of a deal. I think you can still believe evolution, still believe the Bible. And um, we don't take Genesis literally. We take it figuratively. <coughs> the problem is, when they think it through to its end, it undermines so much more of our doctrine, even the very doctrine of salvation itself. So it is vitally important. And there are those that support evolution that are the spearheads of it that are the most uh, ardent supporters of it and propagators of it, that no doubt are atheists, and they do it for the sole purpose of the fact that they don't want to have to answer that there's a God in heaven that made them. If there's a God in heaven that made them, then they have to admit that they have to follow His rules. He's got every right 
to make whatever rules he wants to do. We've talked a little bit about some of these things last week, and we ended uh, with several passages of Scripture. Immorality. There's no longer any, any reason to be moral. Uh, sexual perversion can go on because there is no moral law. If, if the Word of God can't be trusted, then why trust the Ten Commandments? In fact, we even take them out of our schools, don't we? We say we're not even going to teach creation. They passed a law in the 80s where it's illegal to teach in the public schools creation. They did a law a few years ago trying to say, well, they can still put creation in there, but it has to be taught as a particular way and only so much of it. They've taken the Ten Commandments out of our classrooms. They've taken them out of our courthouses. They've taken, taken them off of our public buildings. Why? We've been taught that we're just evolved beings. We're nothing better than an animal. I was talking to some people in line Sunday at lunch. I, I think it was Brother Mark or somebody. I don't remember who it was. I had my hands full. I had a plate in one hand. I had a, another plate in another hand. And I had another plate of dessert I wanted to get. And I still had a drink, and I thought, what animal in their right mind thought it would be good to get rid of their tail? You know how handy a tail would be right now? I could hold another plate. I could hold another cup. How is that evolving to something better? Not to mention, which one of those decided when, when people evolved to a higher intelligence, to a higher being, meaning man? Which ones of them thought, well, hey, you all go on ahead. I'm content where I'm at. I'm just going to stay right here. If evolution happened, why aren't we all the same thing? Not only that, there had to be two of them evolved at the exact same time. There had to be a blue one and a pink one. Or there wouldn't have been any more of them. There's, there's so many things that just evolution cannot answer. And so the, the, the idea of morality goes out the window if we teach our children that they're not made in the image of God. There's no value to human life if we're just part of some molecules and advanced amino acids. There's no value to life. You're just a product of chemicals. There's no morality in life. We talked a little bit about that. That's why abortion is so easily done. It's just a bunch of tissue in a body. It's not a life. It's what they're being taught. There's no value to the human life. Murder, suicides are rampant <coughs> because we no longer teach the vast majority of our children that there is a moral law of God, that they're created in the image of God, that they are of value to Him. That they're made in His image and in His likeness. That, that, that man is to, to be respectful of each other. We don't teach those things anymore in our schools. We teach them that they're just nothing more than any other animal that evolved. When it comes to using things that alter your mind, drugs, illicit drugs, and the alcohols and, and things that are out there that, that cause people to have their minds altered and changed, and cause them to, to do horrendous things, have their inhibitions lowered, and to be able to, to, uh, to kill and, and uh, maim and hurt other people because they're out of their minds while they're on these things. There's no reason not to be, because if they're just an evolved being, it's all about just feeling good for themselves, whatever makes them feel good. There's no moral law for them to follow. We're living in a day where socialism and Material equity is of the—that's uh, that's a big thing anymore. People talk about 
uh, equality, and what they mean by that is uh, financially and materially in every other way, to just make everybody equal. Why? Because, because we're all just evolved animals. There's no purpose in life. There's nothing to strive for. By the way, that's how these mass shootings that can take place. Kids come into a, a place, or even adults come into a place, and over silly things, over silly things. I think it was a few weeks ago, somebody was shot over a pizza. A pizza. man went out, got a gun, and shot him. Why? Because there's no value to life. I've given you verses of Scripture, and I'm not going to go through all of them tonight, that a lot of these social things that are being pushed and thrown in our faces, the, the homosexual movement, the blurring of the genders, you're just a mass of molecules, and you were just randomly determined whether you were going to be a male or female, so you can kind of choose yourself in case the universe made a cosmic hiccup or mistake in your case. Instead of saying that in the image of God created He them male and female. That God has a purpose for every man to be a man and for every woman to be a woman. That's why He made them the way He did. That God has so preciously formed us in the womb to be who we are. We don't teach our children this anymore. And it matters. It matters. We have now adults. We now have grandparents who hold to these same views. Because even in their day, they were taught these things of evolution. I gave you some science last year, last year, last week, last year, figuratively speaking, in an era of time there, last week. I gave you some uh, things of, uh, of science nature. I'm going to give you a couple more here, and then I want to spend a little bit of time on a couple of topics. One of them tonight I think we're going to get into is dinosaurs. Uh, that's a big thing. Uh, people, the evolutionists say the dinosaurs went extinct billions of years ago. And again, that's why we do have, obviously they existed. We have their fossils, so we know they existed. But does the Bible talk about dinosaurs? We're going to take a look at some of that, Lord willing, here. Uh, a lot of people talk about mutations. You know, for, for, for the evolution process to take place, there would have had to have been billions Billions of steps uh, taken. And yet we don't find inter intermediate steps between the species. We don't find anything that causes them to cross a little bit closer and a little bit closer, and finally they get to this place and now they're here. They've met, made the benchmark. There should be billions of these around. They can't find any of them. So what they often do is they say, well, it was a sudden mutation that took place. It was an instantaneous type thing because we don't have any steps between these to show that they evolved into that. <coughs> There's two problems with mutations. One of them is the, the vast majority of mutations are sterile. They cannot reproduce that same mutation in it. The second thing is that mutation is always a loss of information in the DNA. It is never a gaining of information in the DNA. Another thing that they use, and I mentioned this last week, is the billions of light years away stars. And we talked about the fact that light was made mature when God created the stars. The light was put there in place with the stars. And uh, everything else in creation was built maturely and created maturely and fully matured. There's no reason to think that He differed when it came to the stars and the lights. 
similarity in skeletal structures and forms is not an argument for um, evolution. It's really more of an argument of the same person created them all. Uh, there's a similarity there. So a lot of these uh, evolutionists, I'm going to share this one and talk to you about this. So they'll use, uh, they'll use some birds uh, that, that can't fly. Okay? They'll say they, they are in the process of evolving. They used to be able to fly, now they can't fly. And so that's proof of evolution. So what about these birds uh, that can't fly? Well, if you go and look at all of them, without exception, uh, penguins, um, trying to think of some others, ostriches, I guess, they can kind of hop and glide a little bit, but they don't really fly. Uh, you look at some of these, these birds that do not fly, and you, you, you say, well, do the wings even have a purpose now since they can't fly? Well, truly, they do. In fact, they have a very vital purpose in a lot of cases. So, for instance, uh, they oftentimes, these, these birds, when they run, they have to have these wings or they can't balance. They would fall over when they run. They, could you imagine a bird trying to, trying to run across the ground and, and he doesn't have those wings and all he can do is flounder on the ground. He can't stand up. He can't balance himself. A lot of them use them to cool themselves in hot climates and hot weathers. They couldn't survive where they live without those wings. Warmth and cold weather, as the penguins often do, again, could not survive without them. The protection of the ribs is another purpose of these wings, and oftentimes in different cases. They use them in the mating rituals. They use them for defense from predators. They use them in sheltering their offspring. And so evolutionists would look at those that cannot fly and say, well, these wings are, uh, are, are, are not necessary. They're uh, in the process of evolving from one flying thing to another. And the truth is, they're exactly the way God made them to be. They have to have those wings or they could not survive. They could not live. And if those wings were useless, if they were devolving, if you will, into, or evolving into something else, then why would the muscles on those wings still work if there was no need for them? Why not just let the muscles atrophy and just let the, let the wings hang there until they disappear? They all work, and they all work exactly how they're supposed to. There's so many things from lungs to gills, stomach to digestive systems. The eye itself, when you consider the eye, just all that would have had to happen for our eye to evolve. The kidneys, it would have all had to happen instantaneously. The brain, the nervous system throughout the body, the heart, the bloodstream, uh, the, the ability to reproduce in mammals. The eggs and the shells for the birds and the reptiles had to be part of the birthing process. And yet you don't find any of these progressive missing links along the way of things that are halfway there or midpoint between the evolving of this. They just happened. And the evolutionists cannot explain it. One of the things that they talk about that they say is a reference to the billions of years is they use rocks and, and layers of rocks to determine the age of the fossils that are found in them. If you ask a, a serious geologist how they know the age of the fossil that was found in that layer, they would say because of the layer it was found in. And I've, I've actually gone and looked at secular science books, numbers of them, that talk about this, and they do say this in the science books. They say the way that we know the age of that fossil is by the layer that it's found in. And then later in the book, they'll say, we understand and know that this layer is so many years old because of the fossils that were found in it. 
You cannot measure them both to each other and say this is why it's this old. That's circular reasoning. In the science books, they, many of them actually say that and do that. And so they talk about this. And so one of the things that, uh, that scientists will bring up that believe in evolution is they'll uh, bring up the fact that there are no dinosaurs, that the dinosaurs uh, went extinct billions of years ago. Well, uh, I'm going to share some things tonight and maybe tomorrow. Uh, I, think, I think the question, when did the dinosaurs go extinct, is the wrong question to ask. I think more, more importantly is, did they go extinct? Did the dinosaurs go extinct? And we're going to look at some things, and I'm going to give you some information, some documented things that I think will be worth looking at. But uh, look with me, if you will, in Exodus chapter number 20. Exodus chapter 20. We're going to spend most of our time tonight and maybe next Wednesday on the subject of um, dinosaurs and, uh, and what the Bible has to say about them. All right? Exodus chapter 20. And I'm going to lay a groundwork with this particular verse. <coughs> and uh, let's look in verse number 11. Exodus chapter 20 and verse number 11. So a lot of Christians would say, well, you know, they say that these dinosaurs went extinct long before man came on the scene. So, uh, Pastor, how could, uh, how could dinosaurs and men coexist if, if the fossil record doesn't, doesn't show that? Uh, let's look in verse number 11. The Bible says, For in six days the Lord made heaven and earth, the sea, and all that in them is. Now, in the Hebrew, the word all means all. Okay? I just want to help you with that. If you need to go back to the original languages, uh, the word all means all here. For in six days the Lord made heaven and earth, the sea, and all that in them is, and rest at the seventh day, wherefore the Lord blessed the Sabbath day and hallowed it. If you need any verse of Scripture to refute evolution, just one, you can say that's it. Everything that's in existence today was created by God in six literal days, and on the seventh day He rested. Now, prior to the flood... People lived over 900 years old. <laughs> that's pretty old. Uh, that's pretty impressive. Um, in fact, uh, when, when, uh, when men have studied human brains in modern day, they find that generally, the general rule of thumb is that we use less than 10% of our brain capacity in our lifetime. It's almost like God created our brains to live a thousand years, uh, to, to be able to endure that time of the life there before the flood, after the fall of man. And uh, men were living up to 900 years old. Now, here's an interesting fact. Reptiles, which is what dinosaurs are, they grow as long as they're alive. They never stop growing. They're not like mammals who get to a certain size and they stop. Could you imagine some of these lizards that we have and guillemot monsters that we have today that now live 20, 30, 40 years, some of them maybe 50, living 900 years? How big it would be. How large it would be. And some of them have the same skeletal form as some of the large skeletons of these dinosaurs that we've pulled out of the ground. 
My question is, did the dinosaurs go extinct? I know a lot of uh, people say, well, uh, dinosaurs weren't around at the time of Noah in the ark because there's no way Noah could have put those dinosaurs on the ark. They were too big. They were huge. And that's true. Dinosaurs are very big. A lot of the fossils are very big. And the big ones are very big, but the little ones are real little. And Noah was pretty old. He, he, I, heard, uh, I heard another creationist say this. I'm borrowing this from him because I like what he said. He said Noah was 600 years old when he got on the ark. He knew enough to not take the biggest he could find. In fact, it would do him well to find babies, find small ones, because they're going to live longer. They're going to produce more offspring to repopulate the earth after the flood. He said, you know, the only requirement would be you get a pink one and a blue one, make sure. But you don't have to take the biggest ones you can find. And then it only had to be the ones that were dwelling on the earth that breathed the breath of life. That's what the Bible said. Those that were in the ocean that could breathe in the ocean or could survive in the ocean didn't have to come on the ark. And in fact, most of the fossil record of dinosaurs that we have today, the vast majority of them, are sea uh, or, or water-based dinosaurs. We don't have a whole lot of land dinosaurs <coughs> we do have some, but not a ton of them. So there weren't a ton of these dinosaurs that they had to take on the ark. And when they did, they took small ones. Uh, they didn't have to take the biggest ones they, they could find. And so uh, so what happened to these dinosaurs after the flood? Uh, man, when we came out of the, out of the flood, uh, instantly the lifespans began to drop, didn't they? 400 years, 300 years, eventually 200 years, 150 years, and now pretty much to the lifespan that we have today, under 100 years. And um, the same thing held true for the dinosaurs. There was uh, several things that took place uh, after the flood, and one of them was that people needed to eat, and so they would hunt dinosaurs for meat. Uh, Sometimes these dinosaurs were a menace. There are, uh, you would think if there were, uh, legends of uh, dinosaurs that would attack the villages and the hero would have to go out and save the day by killing the dragon. Uh, these are all dinosaur stories. You say, well, Pastor, those are dragons and you're talking about dinosaurs. Well, dinosaurs weren't called dinosaurs until the mid-1800s because there was no such word. They were called dragons before that. Uh, the, the word dinosaur was created. It was made up in the mid mid 1800s I think around 1843 or so somewhere in that range. And so these legends, these these folks, in fact, the Catholic Bible has two extra chapters in the in the book of Daniel, uh, chapter 13 and 14. And in the 14th chapter of Daniel in the Catholic Bible, it talks about Daniel, uh, the the king comes to Daniel and says, is not this a god walking among men? And Daniel said, no, it's not a living God walking among men. He said, if you'll give me leave, I'll go out and kill him. And the Bible, and, and that, that extra verse, chapter in the Catholic Bible, talks about Daniel going out and killing a dragon uh, and saving the village because he was terrorizing and uh, nothing they could do to stop it. Um, and Daniel goes out and kills him. Um, so after, after the flood, they were being hunted. Uh, they were, uh, for meat, they were being hunted because they were a menace. Sometimes men wanted to prove they're brave. Uh, knights were, would go out and slay the dragons. Not all those tales were just legends. Those were, there was some substance to those stories. They would do that to show their worthiness of a knight and chivalry. Uh, to 
uh, compete for land. How many of you got on the news the other week that they had a, a bear running around Festus here? That was pretty rare, wasn't it? We don't have that happen very often. But you know, this part of Missouri years years ago used to have a lot of bears in it. What happened? A lot of people moved here and settled here. The bears moved. They didn't want to be around the people. So the dinosaurs moved. They didn't want to be around the people. Which is why a lot of times you don't find a lot of fossils with human footprints with dinosaur footprints, although they have found some now. Uh, There's not very many because, again, the dinosaurs didn't live a whole lot around the people because they were getting killed off by them. A lot of them were water dinosaurs. And then they would use dinosaurs a lot of times for medicinal purposes or in recipes. There are tons of ancient recipes that call for dragon blood, dragon spit, dragon scale, dragon meat, dragon fat. Uh, and they would, they would always be looking for these things to put in some of their recipes that they did. Um, they weren't called dinosaurs back then. They were called dragons. And uh, you would think that if these dragons existed at the same time men existed, that there would probably be a bunch of legends about them. Well, there are. Uh, you got the story of Gilgamesh, which is a classic that talks about him killing the, uh, a dragon. There's a Chinese legend uh, of a fellow by the name of Yu, Y-U, and it says this, and this is the Chinese legend. It says, after the great flood, isn't that interesting? After the great flood, Yu surveyed the land of China and divided it into sections. He built channels to drain the water off to the sea and help them make the land livable again. Many snakes and dragons were driven from the marshlands when you created the new farmlands. Isn't that interesting? After the Great Flood in part of the Chinese legend. How many of you have been to a Chinese restaurant and they have the placemat there with the, the, the months of the year and have the, the, the animals on it? Isn't it interesting that on the Chinese calendar there's 11 real animals and one of them that is a dragon that people say, well, that's a mythical creature? What if it wasn't a mythical creature? What if they put 12 real animals on their calendar? And they probably did. The dragons probably lived during the time. Not only probably, I believe they certainly did during the time of these. Let's look in Isaiah chapter 14 for a minute. What does the Bible have to say about some of this? Do, does the Bible talk about some of these things? Well, we're gonna, you might be shocked a little bit at how much the Bible has to say about this. Isaiah chapter number 14, and uh, see if I get the right chapter here. There we go. Isaiah chapter 14, and uh, let's look down to uh, verse number 29. All right? Rejoice not thou, whole Palestina, Palestina, because the rod of him that smote thee is broken. For out of the serpent's root shall come forth a cockatrice, and his fruit. So out of this, out of this cockatrice, the offspring of this cockatrice says, out of his fruit shall be a fiery, flying serpent. Well, that's interesting, isn't it? You mean there were fire-breathing dragons, really? Well, sure there were. They sure were. It's not just the stuff of legends. It's not just the stuff of myths. A famous Greek historian by the name of Herodotus who lived uh, about 440 B.C., about a little over 400 years before Christ, <clears throat> he, he wrote this in his... He was, he was a, a man who 
went about and was writing history all the time. He's always searching for information and making inquiries of people. <clears throat> and he wrote, he wrote this. He said, I went, unto a certain, I went once to a certain place in Arabia, almost exactly opposite the city of Buto, to make inquiries concerning the winged serpents. Upon my arrival, I saw the backbones and ribs of serpents in such numbers as it was impossible to describe. The winged serpent is shaped like the water snake. Its wings were not feathered, uh, but, but resembled very closely that of a bat. The ribs uh, were there. There were uh, a multitude of heaps, some great, some small, some mid-sized. The place where the bones lie is an entrance. At the place where the bones lie is an entrance of a narrow gorge between steep mountains, which there, uh, uh, which there opened upon a spacious plain communicating with the great plain of Egypt. He then relates, with the spring, the winged snakes come flying from, the, from Arabia towards Egypt, but are met in this gorge by the birds called the ibises, who, form, uh, who forbid their entrance and destroy them all. This is written by Herodotus, who, or Herodotus, who actually witnessed these things and wrote them down. Uh, probably a more notable ancient historian by the name of Josephus. Josephus relates the story of a great fiery serpent uh, that Moses had to kill when he came to Ethiopia. If you remember when he fled Egypt and went to Ethiopia. He married the princess of Ethiopia because of his heroism in killing the serpent uh, and killing the dragon. And Josephus records that as history. The Babylonian god Marduk is pictured with a fire-breathing dragon standing, uh, kneeling, uh, laying at his feet. Look with me in Job chapter 41 for a moment. We're going to spend a little more time on this next week. Job chapter 41. Job was written uh, shortly after the flood, but before uh, Abraham, the time of Abraham and the children of Israel and the giving of the law, that, that type of thing. The reason we know this, Job uh, was probably about 400 years old. Um, he, was, he was rather elderly, and he was able to see several generations of his grandchildren. And so uh, he lived a fairly old age, probably three to 400 years old, somewhere in that range. And again, that's what they were living right after the flood. Uh, so probably a fairly close descendant to one of uh, Noah's sons or one of their sons. But uh, Job was uh, one of the older books that we have in our scriptures. And uh, Job was tested by Satan. God allowed Satan to test him for his faithfulness. And uh, a group of his friends come together, four of his friends come together, and they spend 30-some chapters telling him how he sinned and how this, this must be the judgment of God on him doing wrong. And Job does not sin. He, he, he says, no, that's not true. The Lord giveth and the Lord taketh away. Blessed be the name of the Lord. I don't know about you and I if we were in such a condition, if we'd be the way that Job was, but that's the way he was. And Job asks the Lord a question, and God answers him with a question. And he starts in verse number 41. He says, Canst thou draw out Leviathan with a hook, or his tongue with a cord which thou lettest down? Canst thou put a hook into his nose, or bore his jaw through with the thorn? Will he, make, will he make many supplications unto thee? Will he speak soft words unto thee? Will he make a covenant with thee? Wilt thou take him for a servant forever? Wilt thou play with him as with a bird, or wilt thou bind him for thy maiden? So he's talking here of a creature. 
that can't be tamed. He cannot be controlled. Job can't have control of him. Verse 6, he says, Shall the companions make a banquet of him? Shall they part him among the merchants? Canst thou fill his skin with barbed irons or his head with fish spears? In other words, he's a formidable animal creature. Difficult to slay, difficult to kill. Lay thine hand upon him. Remember the battle. Do no more. Behold, the hope of him is in vain. Shall not one be cast down even at the sight of him? And God's trying to say, Job, I created such a being. You know, Who are you to be asking me these things? Where were you when I created this? And notice he says in verse number 10, None is so fierce that dare stir him up. Who then is able to stand before me? In other words, this, whatever this creature was, Leviathan, it was the king of creation. It was like the top... Uh, some people say that the lion is the king of the jungle, that he's the king of beasts. We're talking here about uh, Leviathan in chapter 41 of Job. And uh, says, None is so fierce, dare stir him up. Who then is able to stand before me? Who hath prevented me that I should repay him? Whatsoever is under the whole heaven is mine. I will not conceal his parts, nor his power, nor his comely proportions. Who can discover the face of his garment, or who can come to him with his double bridle? Who can open the doors of his face? His teeth are terrible round about. His scales are his pride, shut up together as with a closed seal. One is so near to another that no air can come between them. They are joined one to another. They stick together that they cannot be sundered. By his kneesings, that's an interesting word, isn't it? In fact, it's the only time you'll find this word in the entire King James Bible. In fact, it's the only time you'll find this word in the English language. The King James translators, when they were translating this, came across a word that Sneezing wasn't enough. There was, something, there was something beyond that, and they didn't even have a word for it, so they actually coined this word when they, when they translated it. Notice that it says this. And it's not, it's not a typo in your Bible. Don't think that they should have said sneezings here and, and sneezing. But it says, by his sneezings, verse 18, a, look at the next word here, a light doth shine. And his eyes are like the eyelids of the morning. Out of his mouth go burning lamps, and his sparks are a fire leap out. Out of his nostrils goeth smoke as out of a seething pot or cauldron. His breath kindleth coals, and a flame goeth out of his mouth. In his neck remaineth strength, and sorrow is turned into joy before him. He goes on and on to describe this. This is Leviathan. Next week we'll deal with Behemoth, who's also mentioned in Scripture that lives in the reeds and the fens. And we'll share a few things about some historical facts. Folks, dinosaurs did not go extinct billions of years ago. There have been eyewitness accounts in the history of man of these creatures. They've seen them firsthand. When the Bible says that God created the heaven and the earth and all that in them is, it means that God created the heaven and the earth and all that in them is. Even the dinosaurs. And they've lived with man. And I'll submit to you some evidence that there's some possibility that in some portions of our world today, there may still yet be a few living. And we'll share that next week. Alright? That'll pique your interest a little bit. Let's go ahead and stand. We'll be dismissed in prayer. Father, we're thankful for Your Word how it instructs us and guides us.
Lord, how You have seen fit to put these things in Your inspired, 